This is Timestamp, the podcast dedicated to capturing this moment in time. I'm Amy Breslow. Today's episode, Seeing Through Different Eyes. My guest today is Fred, who identifies as an African-American man. So, Amy, when I think about some of the things I read and grants that we've written over the years, I used to use the word vulnerable because it struck a chord in the foundation world as something that got their attention. But I think many of us in nonprofit, the nonprofit sector, struggle with that because it doesn't talk about our strengths. It talks about our weaknesses or people of color or communities of color or communities that are struggling. And so we shifted away from using the word vulnerable to resilience. Because what we've discerned over the course of the 38 years I've been doing this work is that many of these communities are fighting things on a day-to-day basis that many of us could not even grapple with. I recall a project I was working on in Larmer in the city of Pittsburgh, and I had about six white contractors who were doing environmental scans of a community. And one of the things I required every contractor to do was to build a relationship with the community members because I was tired of seeing situations in which other people came into communities of color, did their expertise, and walked out, and they were feeling great about their work. And there was no transfer of the DNA of the work. There was a transaction that occurred. But many people in our community did not understand, well, what was the nature of that work? Why was it significant? What will it resolve? What was, his, what was his intent? And so I remember my contractors coming to me saying, I've been following some people, meeting with them after work, spending quality time with them. And they were astonished that the amount of resilience these people had to come to the project. I told all of the developers and project managers, that they had to mentor one community member and they had to learn before they finished the project what they actually did, what kind of schooling that was required, what was the kind of salary that they made. And I wanted that exchange to be one in which the practitioners got to see the resiliency of the community. The community got to see what it took to do some of the things that were transpiring in their community. And I remember a couple stakeholders, contractors coming to me saying, hey, I didn't know this was this challenging for these families. And I said, well, what did you what do you mean? They're like, well, the one woman I'm working with, she has to get up, take her kids to school, then go to work, then pick them up from school, then come home, then make dinner and then meet with me. To do that, she has to catch three buses both ways. And when I did the math, it was this many hours. And then we're asking her to come do this with us afterwards. 
and she's excited and happy. And I remember that contractor saying, I don't know if I could do that. And it was just a symbol of what the difference is when you look externally at a community and you make a judgment that this group of people are suffering in such a way and they're vulnerable. But what we've discerned is that these communities are resilient and we should stop using the word vulnerable and use a more positive word that really reflects their journey and use this opportunity to help them pivot based upon their resilience to pursue other opportunities in their life that they may not have been aware they have a penchant for, a desire to learn more about. For the past 41 weeks, I've been deeply involved as well as my team with a series of uh, exchanges between public officials and other stakeholders with this desire to ensure that testing and other critical activity was taking place in communities of color regarding COVID testing, regarding treatment, regarding uh, communications. And so I've been in a multitude of high-level meetings in which I saw people who have titles of as leaders, but functioning like managers. And I was confused and trying to discern, okay, we need to be thinking out of the box right now because COVID has drastically impacted our way of being. And that the things that we were used to doing, the things that we thought we could anticipate, we no longer can do nor anticipate. And that required us to pivot to be iterative, to be agile. I found that many of my white colleagues that I work with and have met over the last 41 weeks weren't capable of being agile. And I struggled with that because I found myself in a space where I believe leadership was essential to helping us pivot. And when you started to dig into what people were contemplating, many of these leaders were talking about, I can't wait till we get back to normal. And I struggled with that because I said, well, I'm not interested in getting back to normal because in February 2020, black people were still getting killed by the police. So that's not a normal I want to get back to. I asked my colleagues, can we reimagine in this moment a different reality for us, a different opportunity? A different way of being. And what I realized in that moment was that many people had undiagnosed trauma. They were um, hypervigilant as a result of COVID. And their ability to manage that resulted in reverting back to what they already knew, which was this is how I know how to do my job. Knowing how to do your job in a COVID environment does not look the same as a pre-COVID environment. And so I found that we, in my opinion, we missed unique opportunities to be innovative, to be iterative, to be agile, to be more inclusive, to explore different ways of being and understanding because people were uncomfortable with the stress and shocks that were 
addressing their sector, their work environment, and maybe even their home. And this dynamic really, in my opinion, short-circuited our ability to pivot in a meaningful way that ensured all voices were being heard, all ideas were being considered. And so even today, when I'm on calls, I listen to people who keep referring to, we have to get back to normal. And given what I understand about the virus, the waves of the virus, the secondary effects of the virus, which we haven't heard a lot about, there is evidence that after you get COVID, there is a health dynamic in many people that is unresolved. And so we need to be thinking about what is a post-COVID reality look like? And this is where I think people of color who have suffered as a result of racist systems, oppressive nature of people, people of color have had to figure out how to survive, how to work, how to navigate systems in which they weren't intended to be a part of, systems in which they only had a certain level of appreciation, a certain level of power, a certain level of voice. People of color have, throughout their entire existence in America have had to figure out how to navigate that. And for me, that is a blind spot for white America. This is what I refer to as white privilege is when you can't even acknowledge that in this moment, you have a certain level of privilege that, have, that has created a blind spot that doesn't allow you to even see that in this moment, we need to think and be different. And the only thing that you could do is resort back to what you know. You're, you're not capable or unable to really explore new opportunities. And one of the other things that I think is critical is in, in that exploration, it also requires, in my opinion, that the diversity of thought, the diversity of being, the diversity of gender, the diversity of race, and all of these things, in essence, creates a paradigm shift in which people have to, in their mind, give up something. And I think there is a resistance to change, not because change is not good. I think there's a resistance to change because in some people's mind, change means giving up power. I don't see that as giving up power. I see that as optimizing your ability to create new power, different power from different vantage points. How do you optimize the latent ability of every human being to bring their gifts, skills, and talents to a problem, and how do we honor difference in that problem solving that doesn't allow me to think that I alone have the answers to all of the questions? And I've posed this question frequently in meetings I'm in as I recognize that most of the decision-making power resides in white people making the decision. And so in the last few meetings I've been in, I've said, Help me understand how I'm in this room. The room is comprised of 95%, 98% uh, white people. The world is comprised of 10% of white people globally. 
But in every room I'm in, white people are the dominant people in the room that get to make the decisions for the entire world. How does that reflect diversity of thought? How does that reflect diversity of, of race, ethnicity, social economic strata? How does that create real change when a, a small group of people are making all of the decisions for the world? Like that just, I don't know how you think you can resolve anything if you don't have people to have a shared lived experience that can really convey that wouldn't work or this might work because this is how that actually functions in reality. It's almost the same challenge that we have at the governmental level when you hire a bunch of very smart people, which I don't think that you should not hire smart people. But I think there should be a balance between very smart people from Ivy League schools with people who have survived America, who have navigated the challenges of America, who can tell you what it's like to be hungry, who can tell you what it's like to make a decision between paying my rent, paying my car, buying my kids school clothes, um, buying meat or potatoes or, or pasta. And I don't understand how you can write policy if you've never had that experience and your policy is to serve vulnerable people or resilient people. It's just if you're writing policy for resilient people, it seems to me that policy writers should have resilient people at the table saying, here's what my experience is. To me, that doesn't happen. And that's not a heavy lift. It's not difficult to bring people in who have navigated their experience. And you ask them, you know, how did you do that? What did it feel like? What did you sacrifice? They will be more than happy to tell you where they think the system could be better, where they think an impediment exists, because it affects their life. Brings me to another concern that I have is about the blind spots that white America has around power dynamics. I've been in meetings in circumstances in which people of color are uncomfortable expressing their true feelings because they're fearful of retaliation, they're fearful of being ostracized, they're fearful that um, they might lose their job. And at, in the same meeting, I see white people just saying whatever they feel and think without any hesitation or mental reservation. What people don't understand is the, the ingredients for power dynamic. Like if you believe that in this moment you have the freedom to speak your mind without any hesitation or mental reservation, because you don't even think for a second, I might get reprimanded, I might get fired, I might people might stop speaking to me. That is so important to understand that you can never arrive at solving real issues if people can't put real issues on the table comfortably. And if I'm uncomfortable putting the real issue on the table, I'm going to be uncomfortable telling you my experience with the real issue. When I've experienced diversity, equity, and inclusion training over the past 30 years, 
and it's been required at a job, I've always seen a resistance in white people who want to know why is this required. They never, for the most part, want to be there and or participate or be transparent. And the training is important. But when you require somebody to get training that they don't want, they're not going to be willing participants in the change process. They're going to be obstructionists. And it may be passive-aggressive. It might be through omission or commission. But they are not willing participants because they don't like being told they need to do something. And oh, by the way, I really don't know those people that well. When you consider that a lot of white Americans never interface with people of color, and some of their first interfaces are in a work environment, and they have perceptions of black people's work ethic, black people's uh, vocal um, vocalization of words, how they say words differently, um, their slur speech, ebonics, you know, all of these things that people have done research on. It's amazing to me how we allow that to drive the relationship that's required to make real systemic change. Change moves at the speed of trust. And yet, at every level of our existence and the work we do, it's all predicated on changing something. But the most important ingredient to change something is trust between people, trust between and among diverse people. How can we ever expect to make change when we don't trust. And so you can't legislate trust. You can't legislate me liking you. But we have to as practitioners, as leaders, as governmental agencies, foster the space and relationship to build honest exchanges that allow people to consider Is what I know accurate? Is the experience I'm having now unique? Is this person an enigma, a unique experience in my life? And the answer is no. There are a lot of people of color who perform exceedingly well at their job. And there's a lot of white people that perform exceedingly well at their job. There's a lot of people of color who don't perform exceedingly well at their job. And there's a lot of white people who don't perform exceedingly well at their job. This notion that one group is underperforming and the other one is overperforming, that's not an accurate portrayal of reality. That's a myth. That's been perpetuated to create divisions among people to foster distrust. What most people of color want white America to realize is that its power structure, its base, its ideology, its practices, there's two justices that exist for people of color. There's the justice that white people get and then there's the justice other people get. And there's there's no clearer evidence 
of this than in the last several months with Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and others, where I always wonder if this was happening to white people, like being televised, happening at such an epic rate, will white America sit by and allow our judicial system and law enforcement to function this way? Deep inside most people, I understand why they have a fear or concern that if people of color ever got into positions of power or got into leadership roles where they can exact revenge, they should be concerned. And I would say that there has been ample opportunity for people of color to respond with some level of revenge given how we've been treated for over 400 years in America, and you just don't see that. There's no real evidence that that is our thought process. That is what we want to do. What most of us want, well, I will speak for me, but many of my colleagues and I just want the foot to be removed from our necks, figuratively and literally. We want the ability to wake up and feel the rays of the sunshine in an equitable way that serves humanity. We want the opportunity to buy houses and cars with the same interest rate that our white counterparts get. We want the same justice and equality that our white colleagues um, receive on a daily basis. You know, when asked what kind of communities do black people want or people of color want, we want the same healthy communities white people want. Or have. They don't want them, they have them. And so when I was talking to some police officers about rethinking how policing could be different, and I posed the question to them, you know, what would policing look like if every family was important to a precinct, to public safety, despite their race, ethnicity, or social economic strata? What if policing was based upon a framework where every family was valued and the real asset to our society wasn't generating capital, it was optimizing humanity? How would policing look and be different? We're not focused on what happened 400 years ago, 300 years ago, 200 years ago. We are focused on what happened 200 days ago, 100 days ago. Because what it reveals to us is that despite our adherence to an inequitable system, to unequal justice, to implicit bias, we still wait patiently for America to level its freedom in an equitable way. We still wait for the Americans' thought process, their emotional content their moral compass to come full circle and acknowledge that we should treat all human beings in a fair and equitable way. We wait patiently for that because we know that in that moment, white America will begin to see America through the eyes that many people of color have seen America through for over 400 years. And in that moment, white America will begin to have a sense a small sense of what it's like to be black or brown in America. 
And once they grapple with that feeling in their gut, deep down in their spirit of how it makes them feel, the visceral feeling of that, it is our hope that white America will lay down the gauntlet and be different. They will strive to serve all people in a humane way. They will relinquish this idea of retribution and they will look for how they can act in a more equitable and just way because in that moment, that action serves all of humanity, not just some. In the dark days that we've overcome the past nine to 10 months, there's hope at the end of the tunnel in the vaccination distribution and that people are beginning to recognize how serious this virus is. It seems to me that we have let our guard down as a result of our desire to be with other human beings, not taking into account how those exchanges can just expand the sickness within spaces that we care most about people, our families, and our friends. And so there is hope today in this new year as we look at the forecast for 2021. There is an offering of new beginnings. But in those new beginnings, I think it is incredibly important that the light that we see at the end of the tunnel must be viewed through a different spectrum, a different lens, one that encompasses humanity as our central point, one that looks at the power of relationships, one that honors differences, but in the face of adversity, sees that we must find common ground. I think that reimagining how we move forward how we envision our circumstances all requires us to consider who should be at the table, what role they should play. Today's challenges are not unimaginable. They are predictable. When you disinvest in communities for many years and you find yourself at the very edge of our understanding of problems because we've not taking the time to understand how people find themselves in such a despondent state. Our knee-jerk reaction is to apply what we know and understand to be solutions. But if you've never been hungry, if you've never had to choose picking diapers over baby food or paying your light bill or getting your kids tennis shoes or school clothes, or not paying your car payment to pay your mortgage. If you've never had those experiences, it's very difficult to understand how we navigate moving forward. As we look forward and we're able to look at the light at the end of the tunnel, how we move forward in 2021, it requires us to be agile and to think in multiple ways about how we problem solve that will require us to partner with, listen to, 
and associate ourselves with people from different cultural values, different persuasions, there's no doubt in my mind that things will get better. But the question is for who? If we do business as usual, the same people will benefit. If we take the time to understand the needs of all people, we can create a more just and harmonious world for all. Thanks for listening. Timestamp is produced by me, Amy Breslow, with original music by Maddie Schuler. You can find us at timestamppodcast.com and can subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back in one or two weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and be well. Thank you.